If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Napoleon Bonaparte. In the last episode, Napoleon explained why it would be absurd for the English to kill him instead of exile him to the island of St. Helena. He also made it clear that compared to him, everyone was incompetent, which might be true. And he helped us understand that he did not rip the crown from the Pope's hands before putting it on his own head. In this episode, you're going to hear about his adventures in Egypt and why he brought artists and scientists and people he called savants with him to study the country's history as he brought war to its people. And at the end, we're going to hear the story of Waterloo and how close he was to winning that battle had the weather just cooperated. So thus, look within yourself, above and beyond. Look to the soldier to your right and to your left. Look to your mission, to your objective, to the glory and honor that awaits you, and go forward. And that is what inspires me, and that is what I try to inspire my soldiers with as well. We should all be so lucky to have that kind of courage. You have, uh, sir, you have called me to task on several things that, that I have said, and rightfully so, but you have just said something that confused me quite a bit, and I'm hoping you can clear it up. Earlier in our conversation, you were talking about the importance of merit and that should a person rise through the ranks of business or government or soldiering, whatever, that that decision should be based by merit. And yet, when we were talking about your death, you clearly said that should you die, that one of your family members would take over. And that seems to be the opposite of what you are saying, that your family would automatically take over and that the succession should be by somebody that is most capable, not a family member. Well, it just so happens that family member is most capable. Now, I have made several of my brothers uh, sovereigns of various states to include my brother Joseph. He first became uh, king of uh, Naples, and then he became king of Spain. My brother Louis, king of Holland. My youngest brother, Jerome, was king of West, Westphalia, and I have groomed them to be good rulers. I have given them advice, suggestions, and the tools that they need to be excellent sovereigns, to follow in my footsteps, to make decisions that I would make. And so thus they are, in fact, best suited to, to be my successors, if need be. But that being said, they just so happen to be part of my family. But because they are part of my family, I was able to be in close contact with them and to groom them to be good sovereigns, competent sovereigns, capable sovereigns. If they were not capable sovereigns, the people themselves, just like the people in France, would overturn them, and I would never let that happen. And in some cases, sometimes I need to provide with them some sort of advisor, some sort of representative that will speak on my behalf, that will give them ideas and suggestions that will make them better rulers of the kingdom that they rule over. The fact that they were underneath, that they were in your presence and they were learning from you at all times is what would make them the most competent ruler after you is, I think, what you're saying. 
It is, absolutely. And remember, it is not just my family members that have become sovereigns, that I have made kings and queens. That young man I spoke of earlier, young Joaquin Murat, who was a young captain of cavalry that was able to secure the artillery pieces at Sablon during the Royalist Uprising of 5 October. Again, he would be risen up in rank to general officer, and I would eventually make him king of Naples. And there is a young man who was once a stable boy. Do you think I would give the rule of a nation to a stable boy if I felt he was incapable of governing and doing what is in the best interest of the people that he is ruling over or in the best interest of what I feel would be a benefit to France? I never would do such a thing. Sometimes I even felt it was best to leave the sovereigns upon the throne and just have them become allies. Many of the German states of the Holy Roman Empire, I did such a thing. Well, eventually, I would dissolve the Holy Roman Empire because it was incompetent. It was incapable. It was outdated, and it had no use at, uh, at whatsoever. So that is why I would create the Confederation of the Rhine in 1806. And the new states that would evolve out of that would be much more efficient and would serve the population much better than the Holy Roman Empire had done prior to that. Let's speculate for a minute, if you'll allow me to do this. What if you, after leaving Elba and, and taking over as the French emperor for a second time, and let's say that you had gone to Waterloo and your adversary over there, I believe his name was Wellington, and let's say that you had won that battle decisively, and to this day, you were still in control of France completely. And, and maybe at a state of peace, maybe the wars had ended. What would France look like right now? I think had I won at Waterloo and somehow sued for peace with the rest of the nations of Europe, I would be hopeful that France would be quite prosperous economically, socially, I would hope that the populace of France would be quite content with my rule. There would be opportunities open for them. There would be much work for all of its citizenry, that the arts, the sciences would all be prosperous as a result. New innovations would be made in technology that could be spread across Europe as a result. I did not want war. And even when I returned from the island of Elba and regained the, the empire of France. I did not want war at all, but it was the sovereign states of Europe that declared war not on France, but instead upon me, the individual. Indeed, some have said they have glorified me by making me a, a nation unto myself, but I did not want the war. So had I won at Waterloo on 18 June 1815 and defeated Wellington and Blücher of the Prussians, I immediately would have sued for peace in the hope that France could remain at peace and would prosper shortly thereafter. I was content with the borders of 1792, in which the northern border would be into Belgium, and the eastern border would be along the Rhine River, and of course the southern border would be the Pyrenees. I did not need the grand empire that I had before. All of those reforms, innovations, and changes for the betterment of the citizens of France would be kept within the empire of France proper. So it all comes back to these reforms. You're just trying to make the world better for your people. Not only for my people, but spreading those ideals across the borders into Europe. So the citizenry there that have suffered as serfs 
for centuries, millennia even, can enjoy some of those. And actually, for the betterment of their principalities, their countries, their nations, by having that system of merit put in place, that someone best suited that might not have the means or the funds or the family could rise up, elevate themselves, and actually serve a greater purpose. So as far as putting those principles into place throughout Europe, is it necessary for you to rule those lands to put those in place? I mean, if you were able to take your ideals to, I don't know, let's say Russia, and you were to present that information to Russia and say, you know, let's make a system of merit and let's give, let's set up banks and schools and do all that. And they thought, hey, that's a great idea. And they were to do it on their own without you leading it. Would that be enough for you? Or do you have to rule all the land? I am fearful that many of the sovereigns of Europe would never initiate such changes. Russia is a perfect example. Indeed, the serfs that work the lands there are no better than slaves and live in deplorable conditions. In fact, when I went into Russia in 18 and 12, it was also a hope as a side effort that I could liberate the serfs, that they would finally have some more representation amongst the kingdom of the Russias, because many of them were treated horribly and no better than slaves. But unfortunately, it did not work out quite the way I had wished. But I do not think someone such as Alexander, the Tsar of all the Russias, would ever think of such an idea to free his serfs, to bring about better livelihoods for the subjects under him. I think he wants to be loved. I think he wants to be popular but I do not think he is in want of creating such changes and innovations amongst his people. The same holds true for the other kingdoms of Europe, whether it be the state of Prussia with uh, King Frederick William III, whether it be uh, Francis I of Austria, whether it be in Spain, another perfect example. They almost appear to be content with living in deplorable conditions in which the Inquisition was still in place, the Catholic Church and some of its abuses were still in place, an incompetent sovereign uh, that had to leave their throne and go to South America as a result. None of them were showing any signs of bringing about these changes for the betterment of their subjects. So myself put in place, setting the example within the Kingdom of France and the satellite nations that I was able to create, I proved it. It was by my own merit by my actions that I brought about these changes that were for the betterment of the people that I interacted with. I wonder if, when I ask this question, it is going to sound terribly offensive, but this is a real question I'm wondering. It appears from a distance that your goal is world domination, that you want to control all. That's the way it appears from a distance. And I'm not 100% sure that isn't the truth, but the reason might be because you are just smarter than everybody else. And the truth is that if you were to take over all the lands to the north and the south and the east and the west, and everybody was operating under your rule, things would be better. People would have opportunity because you're smarter and your intentions are better than theirs. I mean, is it really that simple that you're just smarter than everybody else and that's why you can't allow them to rule those lands? You are saying two different things. You are saying that I am smarter than everyone, and I think as a ruler, I am. But you are also saying I am in search of world domination. And once again, I stress to you that I only started two of these wars of 
the coalitions that were pitted against me. So I am not in want of dominating this entire planet, but if wars are brought against the empire of France, I will end those wars by bringing the wars to them. And hopefully at the same time, I will be able to spread and bring these enlightened ideas for the betterment of the subjects under their rule. Many of these kingdoms simply have outdated governments and their societies are no better than that of the, the tribes that were able to overturn the Roman Empire. If you look at the Empire of France, like the Roman Empire, in which Rome was the seat of operation, Paris would be the seat of operations. But many of these countries, these kingdoms, these principalities could rule themselves, but just with these enlightened ideas that I would be able to share with them. So I am not in want of domination of being the absolute ruler of all of Europe, of all of the world, but simply could be the focal point, the center, like Rome was to the Roman Empire, Paris could be to the French Empire, whereas those kingdoms would not be dissolved, they would not become part of France, but rather they would retain themselves as Austrians, Russians, Prussians, Portuguese, uh, Sardinians, and Spaniards, but they would be endowed with these enlightened ideas. Had you been able to accomplish your goal of passing these ideals on to the people around you, the people throughout Europe, maybe even go further, maybe Russia, had you been able to do that, and if they had managed their own governments, more or less, but with some assistance from you, eventually you were going to get older and die, there's no way that the next person would have been able to hold this together. There's just only there's only so many Napoleons that'll ever be born, and the odds of the next person being one of them is very low, which is probably why the the Romans eventually fell apart is because they had great leaders like Caesar and but you just you eventually run out of them. Even if you had pulled this together, it was going to fall apart eventually, wasn't it? Not necessarily. If we could establish a system in which there would be checks and balances, despite the chief executives, if that legislative body or governors or elected officials or those appointed to positions were put in place with a, a map, if you will, or a, a guidebook on how to rule, to govern, to initiate policies, I think uh, it would succeed uh, ad infinitum. I think the more enlightened the chief executive, yes, the more prosperous you would be, but even amongst the Roman Empire, not all of their emperors were enlightened. There were good emperors and there were bad emperors, yet the Roman Empire continued for a thousand years. So I think as a result of that, France would be the same, that even after my passing, hopefully with the bureaucracy that would be put in place, with the checks and balances and representatives and with the education of these elected representatives of the people, then it would be like a, a well-working machine in which they would simply have to follow the rules on how to govern and that would provide them with the best guidance in being rulers. And so thus I think it would find success as long as this idea of government of ruling, of what my future would be, is put in place, then others would be able to follow it.
when you talk about checks and balances, it makes me think of the American Revolution and what they accomplished. What are your thoughts on the Americans and what they're doing? Well, America is a very different place from Europe and certainly from France itself. I spoke earlier of the difference between our revolution, whereas the Americans initially wanted independence. They wanted to create their own country. And whereas in France, it was a very social revolution. We simply wanted to alter the monarchy as opposed to changing it for a new country. So I think the Americans, for the government that they have created with a chief executive in the form of a president and with elected representatives of the people in the form of a Congress, it is really no different uh, in France from a chief executive being a king or an emperor. But as long as you have those elected representatives of the people to speak on behalf of the people, so the people of the outlying states that they have or provinces within France, if they are in need of something or want some change, they can send their elected representative to that Congress, Parliament, or in France, we call it an Assemblée Nationale, and then they can initiate that change as a result. So for the American people, I think by declaring independence, they had become less English and more American. Remember, the colonization of North America by the English occurred in 1607 with the establishment of their first lasting colony at a place called Jamestown. So when they first established their colonization, they were very English. But as the decades, as the centuries went by, they became less English and more New Yorkers, more Carolinians, more Virginian than they were English. So the analogy of a young boy being born, of course, is in need of his parents to provide for him. And as he grows older, eventually it is time to leave home. And when the Americans declared for independence, it was time for them to leave home. For they were no longer really Englishmen, but they had become Americans. Mm -hmm. So I think once America won her independence, the challenge for her was forming a government that would be best suited for the people that it would represent. And the challenge for them is that they had 13 colonies that had become 13 United States. And once their common enemy was defeated, the English, they then became 13 separate countries, not getting along with one another. So you needed someone to be a unifier. You need to find that common denominator once again. And that is why I think they formed the government they did with the constitution that they had created in 1787 with a chief executive and elected representatives of the people in the form of a Congress. So for America, I think that has worked quite well. For they have left some sovereignty to the individual states, but they are subject to a greater good, which is that of the federal government headed by the president and by Congress and by their judicial body as well. So for America, that works. For France, I think there was the necessity for a stronger chief executive, but continuing to have those elected representatives of the people in the form of our Senate. So it is just slight variations between us. But I think for the Americans, that was best suited. When you mention your Senate, these are a group of people that are around you that that aid you in making decisions, that give you advice, is that correct? They can. I can attend the Senate. I can put forward bills and ideas that will be voted upon, whether they are a good idea. 
even going back to whether I was to be emperor of the French or not, that was their decision to make. So they are a, a legislative body uh, of elected representatives, which will assist me, uh, help to guide me, make suggestions to me, and vote upon different decisions that are going to be made. If the Senate comes up with a decision that you know is foolish, in, in the case when you were ruling, would you allow that to go through even if you knew it was wrong? Well, I'm not an absolute monarch. I cannot rule absolutely and dictate all policy. But rather, I think I would go into discussion with the Senate. If it was such a horrible idea that the vast majority of the Senate is voting against it, then it is probably a bad idea as a result. So most of these ideas we were of like mind with knowing that they were forward-thinking, innovative, for the betterment of the citizens or the situation in France at that time, if it is dealing with foreign policy. So let's talk about Egypt. When you went to Egypt, and by the way, when you look at the battle map of all the different places that you fought, I mean, it's just back and forth. I mean, you covered a lot of ground. And, you know, Egypt, I think, is about as far south as you went. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about this battle. Why go so far south? What was the purpose of fighting in Egypt? So after my successful Italian campaign of 17 and 96 and 17 and 97, I returned to Paris. And we were looking for ways in which we could defeat our consummate enemy, that of England, who was funding all of the coalitions and wars against us. So it was thought that economically, the best way in which to hurt England would perhaps be to destroy her trade with the East India Company potentially even going f as far as the subcontinent of India. But France was in want of establishing new colonies, and the dark continent of Africa <clears throat> really had not been explored in the interior, and certainly not of Egypt. Now, Egypt at that time was ruled by the Ottoman Empire, and specifically the Mamelukes. The Mamelukes came from the Caucasus in the Georgia region, and they were the ruling power there within Egypt, subject to the Ottoman Empire. Egypt could produce a lot of natural resources. She had a tremendous amount of grain and uh, cotton, uh, and it could be quite lucrative to plan an invasion of England. Now, admittedly, we French have been talking about invading England since 1066, and it still had not come to pass. But nonetheless, my invasion force assembled in the Mediterranean, at the ports of Toulon, at Marseille, even in my native uh, home of Corsica, uh, there was a flotilla of ships as well as 35,000 men. But I had requested to accompany this expedition, if it was not to be an invasion of England, being that England's fleet was too powerful for us to navigate across La Manche, which they called the English Channel, then if we are going to Egypt, then I would bring educators that could study this lost continent and this lost world of the Egyptian civilization. So I brought as many as 150 what we called savants. And these savants were scientists, botanists, writers, artists that could do a complete study of Egypt and its civilization and try to decode their writing, their hieroglyphs, their history, so we might have a better understanding of that place. So the expedition went underway, and we were narrowly able to avoid the English fleet under Admiral Nelson, 
and we would arrive in Egypt itself. So there I unloaded my 35,000 men in Alexandria, and we began our march towards Cairo. Uh, the Mamelukes that were sent against us were not very well equipped. They did not have modern weapons. In fact, many of their weapons dated from the Middle Ages, and some of their firearms and cannons were from the 17th century and not very effective at all. So thus, we were able to make quick work of them in the various engagements that we fought against them. Most notably would be the Battle of the Pyramids which was not fought directly under the Pyramids, at Embaya, about 40 miles from the Pyramids. But once again, to inspire the soldiers for a bit of propaganda, to motivate the men, I called it the Battle of the Pyramids. And I stated to them before the engagement, from these heights, 40 centuries look down upon you. So we were able to really break the back of the Mameluk Bays, Murad, and Ibrahim Bey, who ruled over the, the military force there. And then I was able to occupy Cairo. I sent one of my subordinates, uh, General Dissay, to go into Upper Egypt to pursue those surviving Mamelukes. And then I was able to establish order. All the while, my savant began this great study of Egypt making sketches. Uh, my architects were looking at uh, the, the building techniques of the various temples that we encounter. And then in uh, a place called Rosetta, we were able to find a fragment of some writing that was uh, not only in hieroglyphs, but also in Greek and Coptic. And this would be a way in which we could somehow decipher what the hieroglyphs were saying. Now, unfortunately, for this expedition, on August the 1st of 1798, the English fleet under Nelson had returned. I had my fleet under Admiral establish itself in a place called Abukir Bay. They had anchored their ships, what he thought to be in a sufficient place where the English could not come sail around them. But on August the 1st, Nelson was able to perform a magnificent feat in destroying my fleet while I was there. So thus we were now trapped in Egypt with no possibility of returning back to France. So we had no other choice but to remain. So I decided to mount an expedition into Syria. There we crossed into that place and we fought the Mamelukes yet again. And I made my way all the way up to a northern port called Acre. But unfortunately the English had intercepted my siege artillery and despite many assaults upon that place, we were unable to take it. So thus I returned back to Egypt and into Cairo, and I soon received reports that the French government, the Directoire, again headed by Paul Barat, was not doing very well, and the people were not very content, and they were in want of change. And so it was thought and recommended that perhaps I return back to France, where I might potentially take part in the coup d'etat that I would take part in. So I evacuated Egypt with a small group of officers, and we were able to make our way back to the mainland of France. And thus, that portion of the Egyptian campaign would come to an end for me. I would relinquish command to my second in command, a man by the name of General de Kleber, but not before I would fight yet another battle in the northern part of Egypt, called the Battle of Abukir, in which I was able to defeat the Mamelukes yet again before returning back to France. And uh, those reports were absolutely correct. The people were in want of change. And very shortly after my return, 
I would perform the coup d'etat and become first consul of the Republic of France. Some have said that you left a lot of men behind in Egypt without proper leadership. I mean, what happened to those men? Did those men die? I left the army back in Egypt because it was necessary for me to return. But without proper leadership, that is ridiculous. General Kleber was an excellent officer and proved himself in many battles, not only uh, in Europe itself, but during the Egyptian campaign itself. So he was left in command. Unfortunately, on the 14th of June of 1800, he would be assassinated by a fanatic there. And then the command would fall to General Menou, who was also another excellent general officer. Now, when the wars eventually drew to an end in 1801 and the Egyptian campaign drew to a conclusion, those soldiers would actually be transported back to France by, of all vessels, English vessels as part of the treaty that France would evacuate Egypt. Uh, okay. Well, I got to tell you, it's fascinating how you, when you go to, into Egypt, you know, a lot of people just to go down there and fight at all, that would be enough to put on their plate. And yet you go down there with all of these scientists, and a lot of that work still exists to this day. A lot of those drawings, a lot of that documentation that you collected. And, of course, the Rosetta Stone is ended up being a very significant find. So it's interesting that you would take those both on at the same time and see the need for science, not just war. Absolutely, because I am an enlightened man. I am in want of gaining knowledge wherever I might find it. So why just a war of destruction? Why not a, an opportunity to learn from this lost civilization? And a great deal of knowledge was extracted from Egypt while we were there. In fact, many have referred to it as the founding of something called Egyptology, in which it is a great study of Egypt and a better understanding of its civilization of the past. For once again, as a historian, of which I count myself as one, we can learn from the past to make us better citizens of the future. And that is precisely what occurred while in Egypt. So some have called it a great failure, but I disagree. I find it to be a great success in its discovery. I have said that the greatest victories in life are not won upon any battlefield, but rather knowledge over ignorance. I have read a few things about a connection that you had with the Sphinx. I understand that you had some sort of fascination with it. I even read once, and I don't know if this is true, that the Sphinx spoke to you. I read that uh, your soldiers used the Sphinx for target practice and shot the nose off. C can you tell me if any of this is true and a little bit about the Sphinx? Well, I did find a fascination with the Egyptian civilization. And there was one moment where a sarcophagus was found, and it was opened, and there were the mummified remains of what appeared to be a king or a pharaoh. And I do recall putting my ear to the mouth of this mummy in the hope that perhaps through some transmigration of souls, through some form of spirituality, he could tell me some of the secrets of this civilization that perhaps would make me a great general. Perhaps he could speak of Alexander while he was there in Egypt. Perhaps he could speak of Caesar while he was in Egypt. And I too could learn from the past as a result. As to the Sphinx, yes, I gazed upon it for hours on end. The pyramids as well 
I entered into the pyramids as well, those of the great pyramids at Giza. But as to the nose of the Sphinx being fired off by my artillerists, nothing could be further from the truth. We had discovered some information that stated that the Ottoman Turks had blown the nose off the Sphinx in the 17th century, so a full century before we had even arrived. And why on earth would I bring 150 savants to study Egypt and then in turn destroy Egypt? That is ridiculous. It is absurd. Once again, I can see, Tony, you have been listening and reading English propaganda. <laughs> they find their way into everything. They can't help themselves. That is true. Thank you for clearing that up. And that is absolutely absurd that you would take all these scientists down there and then try to destroy it at the same time. That is, it, that couldn't be more English. You're absolutely right. Do you remember a battle called Jaffa? I do indeed. Yes, it is during the Syrian campaign of 1799. My understanding at the Battle of Jaffa that there was a time where your soldiers had found several prisoners and then, I forget the number, I think it was somewhere between 2,000, 5,000, something like that, and found out that they were prisoners of war and then bayoneted and drowned them. Is any of this true? War is a very messy business, Tony. And when some of these, well, all of them, that had been taken prisoner prior, had sworn an oath that they, and to their God of Allah, that they would not take part in any more hostile actions in that theater of operations. And then when we discovered during the engagement at Jaffa, which was really a siege, we soon discovered these same men who had sworn this oath that they would not take part in any more hostile actions, once again breaking their oath and fighting against my soldiers. Now, as a result, we could not trust them. We could not give them another opportunity to swear yet another oath, which undoubtedly they would break. We could not trust them to simply go free, for they would conduct themselves as brigands and try to murder and kill my soldiers. So as a result, their penalty was that of death. And being that we lacked supplies, I had my soldiers utilize the sea as well as their bayonets to push them into the sea as a result. Yes, it is one of the unfortunate moments in the campaign of Egypt. There is no question that war is a messy business. And as much as we don't want to ad admit it, if you do not get rid of these people, then it's going to mean that more of your soldiers are going to get killed because they're going to keep coming back, and you're actually saving your own men by dispatching these people. And I'm wondering, Emperor Bonaparte, if in that group, if there were women and children as well. They were not. They were all combatants. You must also understand that during the siege of Acre, there was a Mameluk chieftain called the Butcher, and if that description of him does not paint a picture of what he was like, I don't think anything would. And any French soldier that he was able to get hold of, even as a prisoner, he would decapitate and he would throw their heads into the no man's land betwixt my positions during the siege of Acre. So that is the type of individual we were dealing with during that campaign in Syria. Well, I really have just two things left that I want to ask you, and I one of them is probably fairly quick, and the other one will probably take a couple minutes if you still have time. 
But you've had all of these accomplishments in your life, and you did so much good for your people. It's a shame that you were not able to take your vision as, as far as you I, you probably wanted to. And so I'd, I'd like to ask you about this final battle at Waterloo. That was really the end of your reign. Before we talk about Waterloo, if you have a minute to talk about that, I just want to ask one more thing about, I understand that there was a time where slavery had been abolished and you brought slavery back because you were trying to raise funds or I'm not sure. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Did that happen? Absolutely. Under the French Republic in 1794, slavery was abolished. There was no slavery any longer. Now, slavery was to be found in the French colonies and not in France proper itself, most notably in the sugar islands of Martinique, Guadeloupe, and Saint-Domingue. So there was freedom for the slaves. So eventually, once I perform my coup d'etat and become master of France, I am looking for other opportunities to aid France economically. And of course, most notably would be those sugar islands in the West Indies. An example is that an island as small as Martinique or Guadeloupe or Saint-Domingue is worth more financially to France than all of Canada combined, Mm. simply by its production of sugar and spices and coffee and all of those niceties that civilization cannot live without. So I had reacquired the region of Louisiane in North America, as well as the port city of Nouvelle-Orléans. It had fallen to the Spanish with the Treaty of Fontainebleau uh, in 1762, but through a secret treaty with the Spanish, the Treaty of San Ildefonso in 1801, I was able to reacquire Nouvelle-Orléans and all of Louisiane. My goal, my intent, was to establish a Western empire that would add to the economic prosperity of that of France. What we had discovered is that those French merchants that were going into many of the ports to somehow get hold of the sugar plantations and the products that they were producing were being boarded by these former slaves and people were being murdered, their ships were being burned or simply taken, or their goods were being destroyed. So it was actually a great loss. On the island of Saint-Domingue, there was a great slave revolt, and it was headed by a man named Toussaint Louverture. And Toussaint Louverture led this slave army and fought against anyone who opposed him, the English tribe, the Spanish on Santo Domingo on the other side of the island, and including some of the French plantation owners. So I wanted to restore order out of the chaos that was occurring there. So I dispatched my brother-in-law, General Leclerc, and about 30,000 soldiers to restore order there in Saint-Domingue. And they landed, they were able to arrest Toussaint Louverture and somehow achieve order for but a short time. The problem, and at the same time, I had to reinstall slavery in the Sugar Islands in 1802. I felt it was the only way in which I could keep order out of this chaos of the massive slave revolts that were murdering and killing left and right. So yes, it was reinstated in 1802. Unfortunately for my brother-in-law and his expedition, 
most of them would succumb to the sickness of the island, most notably that of yellow fever. So when I soon discovered that treaty that I had spoken of that ended 10 years of war, the Treaty of Amiens, was starting to fall apart, I decided to abandon my thoughts of a Western empire. So those few troops that remained after the death of my brother-in-law to yellow fever returned back to France, and I began negotiations with the cabinet of President Jefferson that I was willing to sell Nouvelle-Orléans and all of the Louisiana territory to the Americans. Why? Well, if the treaty was to come to an end, no doubt the English would simply sail into the port of Nouvelle-Orléans and have control of the Louisiana territory. I would rather have the Americans take hold of it and that would allow America and England to fight it out for who would gain control as opposed to England fighting with France over that said city. So with the American representatives that were in France, a Monsieur Livingston and a Monsieur Monroe, we began to negotiate a price. I initially had requested $21 million. They felt they could not pay that. I dropped it down to $18 million. They said they still could not pay that. And we finally came to a price of $15 million, of which they agreed. And so thus, with one signature, I made the United States of America the next world power. And they would take hold of Louisiane and Nouvelle-Orléans and that territory, doubling the size of their nation. As to the issue of slavery, I would abolish slavery again in 1815 upon my return back to France after my exile to the island of Elba. I see. So you weren't intending on reinstating slavery forever. You were just trying to create order. That is correct. Okay. And concerning the what we call the Louisiana Purchase, concerning that, I always thought that was just you, you were short on funds and you needed money, but you were that was actually a strategic move to prevent the British from having control of the port of New Orleans. It was both. I knew that war was about to resume, and one thing about wars that we all must understand is that they are very expensive. What is interesting to note, Tony, is that the Americans did not have a sufficient amount of ready money to pay me. Indeed, I think they told me they had $9 million in their treasury. So how would they make up the difference of $6 million? Well, I am told that Monsieur Jefferson negotiated with none other than an English bank. And the English bank granted them this loan of $6 million, and they continued to pay that loan even when I was at war with England. So an English bank was paying the Americans, who in turn were paying me to fund a war against England. That is just that's it, that is absolutely the most incredible fact. It is just amazing how connected it we all are. It goes to show are, you how the almighty pound takes hold. Yeah, no question about it. Okay, so again, I'm so thankful for all your time. I just have this last question. I, I, I would like to hear about Waterloo and, and Wellington. Obviously, this did not go the way you wanted it to go. What was the mistake that was made? So Waterloo, perhaps, is the most talked about battle in the history of mankind. The Duke of Wellington had gained some of his notoriety. He had attended the school at Eton and had gained some success in fighting in the subcontinent of India, most notably the Battle of Assai. I would intervene into Portugal in 1807 and eventually into the Iberian Peninsula, into Spain, 
the English commander selected to support the Spanish and the Portuguese was none other than Sir Arthur Wesley, the Duke of Wellington. And he was a very defensive general. I think that was his forte. And the small amount of soldiers that he had at his disposal, he utilized in an excellent way. The professionalism of his soldier was used to great effect as well. And that is really how he gained his notoriety. He was fighting in the many battles that were fought in Spain from 1808 through 1814. So when I was sent into exile in 1814 on Elba and eventually would escape, the armies that were found in closest proximity to France were found in Belgium. One was an English army under the Duke of Wellington, and the other was a Prussian army under Gebhard von Blücher. I told you earlier, I did not want war. I wanted peace, but they decided to declare war upon me personally. And so thus all the combined powers of Europe began assembling their armies for an invasion of France. Well, they have declared war upon me. The wine has been poured. We must now drink it. So thus I went on the offensive. I took my army of the north of roughly 125,000 men, and my strategic plan was initially to go between the two armies, to separate them so they could not fight together. So marching my army into Belgium, on the 16th day of June, I fought against the Prussians under Gebhard von Blücher at the Battle of Ligny, and I was able to defeat him. In fact, inflict 20,000 casualties upon him. At the same moment, another battle was fought by one of my subordinates, a Maréchal Ney, and he fought against Wellington at the Battle of Quatre Bras. Though he did not decisively defeat him tactically upon the battlefield, strategically, Wellington did remove himself. So the two armies were now separated. Now, the day of the 17th, the day after those two battles, it rained horribly. The ground was horrible. I did not advance my soldiers to pursue one or the other. Eventually, I would dispatch one of my corps commanders and the most recently made Maréchal de France, a man by the name of Grouchy, with 30,000 men to pursue Maréchal Blücher and not let him rejoin, regroup, connect with the Duke of Wellington. And then I decided to move myself on to Wellington at a place called Mont-Saint-Jean, which is uh, about 10 kilometers south of the city of Waterloo. So initially my plan was to stop at seven of the clock in the morning and to attack Wellington and to destroy his army. And then I could turn my focus upon Blücher once again and destroy his army and create a peace. But unfortunately, because of the excessive rain, I could not maneuver my artillery well enough and so I delayed my attack upon Wellington. Though the attack was supposed to begin at seven of the clock, it did not begin until half past the hour of 11. I decided a diversionary attack on the extreme left flank or the right flank of Wellington, a small chateau called Hougoumont. It would perhaps draw the attention of Wellington while I could deliver a decisive blow later. So I began the attack at Hougoumont, and then I launched my column of assault under General Delon. The column of attack did not fare terribly well, and the English counterattacked with their heavy cavalry. But then I, in turn, counterattacked with my cavalry. 
and so the battle was going back and forth. I was pounding the enemy's position with my cannon, and the English were getting the worst of it. In the center portion of the English line was another chateau or farmhouse called Le Haissant, and I felt the person who takes Le Haissant would be the victor of this battle. Unfortunately, about this time, about three of the clock in the afternoon, my scouts had reported that Blucher was preparing to arrive and attack me on my right flank by the village of Plantenois. You see, that subordinate that I had sent to keep Blucher separated from Wellington did not achieve his task. And that was really the biggest problem of the engagement. So I had to dispatch some of my reserves some of my imperial guard to hold off Blucher long enough for me to destroy Wellington. Now, I was not feeling well during the Battle of Waterloo. And in fact, I had to retire for a time from the field. I left command of the army to Marichal Ney. While I was resting myself, being that Wellington was taking such a pounding from my artillery, he decided to withdraw his entire army 100 paces. But when Marichal Ney saw the entire English army withdrawing, he thought they were in full retreat. And the common tactic to use when an army is retreating is to chase it with cavalry, soldiers on horseback. So he launched about 12 cavalry charges against Wellington's line. The reality was he was not retreating. He was just trying to shelter his men from the artillery. They formed infantry squares, which are excellent to repel cavalry. And so thus my cavalry was mismanaged and did not break any of the English squares. At the same time, Blucher was pressing upon my right flank. I was using more and more of my reserves to try to hold him off. I felt one decisive attack on the center of the line would make us victorious. We launched our attack upon Le Haissant. We even took that place, and I launched uh, a portion of my imperial guard to try to break the English line. But unfortunately, the English held, and they were able to repel portions of my imperial guard. The army began to fall apart. It was as if it was all at once. The, the Prussians pressing on the right, the English pressing into our front, the whole army began to collapse. And so thus ended the Battle of Waterloo. Now, I would say that several factors brought about that defeat. The fact that I did not attack on the 17th because of the weather, the fact that I did not begin my attack at 7 of the clock, but instead at half past 11, also delayed the possibility of victory, and the fact that Grouchy did not come between the English and the Prussians and allowed them to unite. And those are really the causes for the defeat at the Battle of Waterloo. Even Wellington himself said it was a near run thing, that had it not been for Blucher, he would have been defeated. Was the Duke of Wellington, was he a good man? Was he a good man? Well, being a good commander and a good man can be two different things. His men, I don't think necessarily loved him, but they respected him. They referred to him as Old Nosy because he had a very pronounced nose. <laughs> he said of his men that gin was the spirit of their patriotism. I would never say such a thing about my soldiers. But truth be told, 
He was an excellent defensive general. He sat upon that ridge all afternoon, repelling my attacks. So for that, I will give him the favor of being a great general. But it was Wellington himself who uh, said, uh, who is the greatest general in the world? And he says, it was, it is, and always will be Napoleon. No question. I read something where he'd said that your presence on the battlefield was the equivalent of 40,000 men. Yes, he said uh, my hat on the battlefield was worth 40,000 men, meaning my presence, that I could inspire my men to do great feats that would give you the equivalent of 40,000 additional soldiers. Emperor Bonaparte, thank you for all of this time. I hope that these the years that you have left on the island there somehow get better rather than worse. And uh, you certainly have given a lot to the French people, a lot to believe in about what they are capable of and put rules in place that will benefit their lives in the future. And so there has been a lot of good that you've done. I'm wondering as we wrap this up if there is anything else that, that you'd like to say. Well, I would like to echo the quote that I had said earlier, for I am a firm believer in it, that the greatest victories in life are not won upon a battlefield, but rather knowledge over ignorance. And I would like to say to the people of France, Je désire que mes cendres reposent sur la borde de la Seine, au milieu de ce peuple français que j'ai tant aimé. I wish that my ashes shall remain along the banks of the Seine, the river Seine, amongst the French people who I love so very much. Sir, I thank you so much for your time. It is my pleasure, Tony. Napoleon admired Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great because they were like him. These were powerful leaders that understood that conquest without contribution was without significance. His life had to be more than just military wins. This explains why ruling a powerful country like France was not enough. He had to go further. He had to create opportunities to improve the lives of his people with the hopes that prosperity for France would allow him to spread his ideals across the world. After all, as he said, countries like Russia were never going to step up and try to improve the lives of its population. His explanation of what happened at Waterloo demonstrates the control he had on the battlefield. He was aware of all the pieces, how they were moving, and when he needed to move. He understood when to take risks and how much risk to take. But eventually, when you bet it all, as he did so many times, you're going to get unlucky once and lose it all. And that's what happened on that day. About six months after this call, Napoleon died on the island of St. Helena. This man of a very average height had left a mark on the world that will never be erased. If you ever want to get an idea of how significant Napoleon's life was to the people of France, go to the web and look at Napoleon's tomb in Paris. It is a magnificent display worthy of the emperor. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.